1: Everybody can take their power back by serving others. Serve others and you have power. You have become an asset. You have redefined yourself as an asset. And the more that you do that, the better off you're going to be.
0: Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome to the Kathy Heller Podcast. This show is meant to be a guide for you. I want to be that mentor who can hold your hand through this journey. I know that there are so many twists and turns And navigating not only what is happening in our mind, but also understanding strategically how we want to get from where we are to where we want to go. In this show, we're going to talk not only about how we can start to become aware of what are the subconscious things that are holding us back and how we can instead choose thoughts that are actually going to propel us forward. But in addition to changing the landscape internally... We are going to talk about the strategies that actually will help you to build a profitable business, getting paid to be you. Because when you have a business where you do what you love, you never really have to have that sense of work because it's a pleasure, because it's joy. And really, I want you to have the most abundant life. I want you to have the kind of life that you love waking up to every day that you don't feel like you need a vacation from. So together on this show, every single episode, I want to be your friend. I want to be your mentor. I want to show you what is it that I think has really been insightful, been helpful. What are the tools and strategies? What are the mindset shifts that have helped me? And what are the things that have helped my guests to get to where they are? How can we together sort of cross this river to the most fulfilling life where we show up and we feel like we are living into our potential and having the most gorgeous, beautiful experience, because after all, that is what we all desire. We're all craving to have the most joyful, beautiful life. And I really believe that we can design that and that we can experience a life that we just absolutely love. And not only will we enjoy it, but it will be a possibility for other people. It will show other people what's there for them. And then maybe together, each one of us, by being the happiest versions of ourself and being the most fulfilled versions of ourselves. We will help other people to reach for that higher branch and to find that in their own life. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller podcast. We have such a good episode today. Dr. Arthur Brooks is here. And since he and I had this conversation, I haven't been able to stop talking about it because... He just brought so much truth to the table and it's so beautiful. So I'm so looking forward to sharing this with all of you. I want to let you know that I will be hosting a three-day retreat in Florida at the end of June. Three days of meditation and three days of designing your life the way you truly want to live it. You can go to kathyheller.com slash retreat to get all the details. So as I was saying, I'm really excited because the brilliant Dr. Arthur Brooks is here. He's a Harvard professor, social scientist, number one bestselling author, and columnist at The Atlantic, and he specializes in using the highest levels of science and philosophy to help people live their best lives. You may have come across one of his books, including Love Your Enemies, The Road to Freedom, and his latest book is called From Strength to Strength, Finding Happiness, Success, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. It's such a good roadmap for finding this purpose and meaning as we age, and it draws on social science and philosophy and theology and Eastern wisdom, as well as dozens of interviews with everyday people to show us that true life success is well within our reach. This book debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list and was endorsed by many great leaders and experts like the Dalai Lama himself, Daniel Pink, Angela Duckworth, and Simon Sinek. So it is the real deal do yourself a favor and go get a copy. Arthur also has been writing for the Atlantic's How to Build a Life column on happiness, and he's the host of their podcast, How to Build a Happy Life, which you also might love. On his podcast, he navigates the unexpected curves on the path to personal happiness with data-driven insights and a healthy dose of introspection. He's had guests on that we love, like Bob Waldinger and Dan Harris, so I think you'll really enjoy that. It was such a joy to sit down with Arthur. He is such a kind and genuine person. His enthusiasm for this topic could light up a whole city. I love just hearing everything he had to say on science, also the spiritual elements of happiness and purpose. I think you're going to really enjoy this and find it as eye-opening as I did. So without further ado, please welcome the spectacular Dr. Arthur Brooks. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I've been just a fan of everything you're doing and your sincerity. You're so genuine. So thank you for making the time.
1: Thanks, Kathy. Thanks for doing the show and and congratulations on the success.
0: Thank you. That's so nice of you to say. I want to dive into your latest book and your podcast, but before we do, I'm sort of curious, what was the beginning of you being on this road of looking into these beautiful questions? Why were you so compelled?
1: it's been a pretty windy road for me. I mean, you told me a little bit about your own unusual background. You were studying Kabbalah after college in Jerusalem, all kinds of cool (laughs) stuff like that. And, you know, the seekers got to seek, as they say. And, you know, I started off my life as a classical musician um, Mm. when I was 19. I didn't go to college until my late 20s. And all the way through my 20s, you know, I played, uh, that was a French horn player. I played chamber music. I played a little jazz with Charlie Bird, the guitar player. I wound up in the Barcelona Symphony. And that's where I got married and started my family life. And when I came back, um, I realized that I needed to do something else, but I couldn't figure out what it was. And I just was completely captivated by ideas. So I went to college and I found that what I really wanted to be was a social scientist because... I wanted to study beauty. I wanted to study happiness. I wanted to study why people are kind to each other. I mean, most social scientists want to figure out why people are terrible and, and warped and damaged. And evil, <laughs> right? and I really wanted to figure out, despite everything, why people are so often good. Why people, despite everything going on in their lives, why they're so often happy. How absurd is that? And so that was the road that took me, I did my PhD and then was an academic and I ran a organization that did research for a long time. And, and I decided when I was in my mid fifties, I was going to spend the rest of my life using my ideas to lift people up and bring them together in bonds of happiness and love. As a scientist, I was going to be part of the solution to the problems in the world and see them as opportunities for greater love and happiness. And that's what brings me to you today.
0: That's so cool. I just love knowing that you played the French horn and I lived in Barcelona for a semester of college and such a magical place, but I just I love that then you started asking questions like it is to use your word it is absurd that people are happy at all when we're just like you know so easily caught in a storm of the subconscious mind and just trying to survive and then the fact that people do uh give somebody else a parking space or people yeah. do love to connect and make things and make beautiful things and play French horn that's amazing and I love that you started to stop and see That And then you've been dedicating your life to that journey and that that seeking, it's so beautiful. So your latest book, From Strength to Strength, Finding Happiness, Success, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life, I think that's so cool in and of itself because I feel like so often people lament that they're getting older rather Mm. than seeing that this is an opportunity. So just from starting off talking about the second half of life, Tell us why, why you think that there's a great actual opportunity there for even maybe more well-being.
1: Well, everybody wants to be happy. A lot of people act like they don't want to be happy, but people really do want to be happier than they currently are. And for a long time, I've dedicated myself to teaching younger people how to get started right on a path toward you know having happier lives. That's what I teach at Harvard. I teach you know big seminars in, in the science of happiness to young people. And they're on average 28 years old because I teach MBA students who are... going to go off into the business world and all that. And one of the things that I noticed is that everybody just sort of assumes that when you're in the second half of life, it's either, you know, the die is cast. Either you're a miserable SOB or you're really happy because you've been successful. And all of that's wrong, it turns out. And there's no happiness education for people in the second half of life. And, you know, the people in the first half of life, their ambition is to get into the second half of life. So it's kind of for everybody. What I realized that what we need, what happiness science needs to produce is the happiness 401k plan. It's what do you need to do when you're younger, which, by the way, is better than a 401k. You don't have to sacrifice your consumption. The more that you invest in your happiness when you're old, the happier you get when you're young, too. And when is it too late or is it never too late? These are the questions that nobody had ever really asked before. And, and frankly, it's a little selfish, I have to say, because I'm getting older, too. You know, when I was in my early 50s, I'm like, I think I as a better deploy my toolkit to my own life because if I live to be 89 years old, I don't want to be confessing to my wife and I might as well be dead. Or, you know, a lot of people are, they get unhappier, but half the population gets happier after 70. And the other half of the population gets unhappier after 70. This is well known. And to date, nobody ever actually figured out who's who and why. So I want to figure out how to get on the upper branch and how to invest in it before you get there and then share that knowledge with the whole world.
0: Oh my gosh, such good stuff. So there's so much to unpack, but the first thought I have is what's the difference between those two groups of people? Why does one get happier and one unhappier?
1: Here's the crazy thing. So the assumption is that the people on the upper branch who get happier are the people where everything went right in their life. They made a bunch of money. People admire them. They were successful at work. And they have a whole lot of you know pleasure or whatever. They feel good a lot, whatever it happens to be. And that's not right. It turns out that the more worldly success that you have early in life, the more likely you are to be in the downward sloping branch after 70. That's called the striver's curse. And at first you're like, that's really shocking because mother nature. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And the whole world tells you, if you want to get happier, money, power, pleasure, fame, money, power, pleasure, fame, just do all this stuff and be successful. And then happiness will come on its own. And it's completely Wrong. Mother nature doesn't care if you're happy. This is principle number one. Mother nature wants you to pass on your genes and to survive. Happiness is a completely superfluous concern to mother nature. And that means we are responsible for this. Look, every religion understands this. So that every religion suggests that we have an animal nature and a divine nature. And left to your devices, like if it feels good, do it. That's your animal nature talking. <laughs> You know, and your animal nature wants you to make a bunch of money or take a bunch of drugs or go to Vegas or to have a bunch of power over other people and have a million followers on Instagram or whatever. And that's because these are your Pleistocene brains, ways of trying to survive and pass on your genes. And your divine nature says, no, 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 no. If you stand up to your animal nature, you can be happy. But it's hard. That requires knowledge. That requires to live differently. That requires integrating yourself into society differently. And so I said, all right, I get it. I get it, I get it. But I got to figure that out and share that. And so what it comes down to is not thinking that your impulses are going to get you on the upper branch because following your impulses are going to probably put you on the lower branch. Mm. That's where the research comes in.
0: Oh, it's so cool. And it makes so much sense. When you first say it, it is surprising. you You do think yeah. because we're all being sold this sort of, trajectory to wind up somewhere around the age 40 with 2.5 kids and a picket fence and a good 401k and there's some implied promise there that you'll be happy forever and so what in fact does it look like that actually makes up our well-being if it's not
1: that so there's the false four and the true four of the goals the false four are your impulses money power pleasure and fame and fame means admiration or procedure. Right? It means social comparison and being on the right side of social comparison. Okay. Those are the things that you think are going to make you happy if you get them. The true four are faith, family, friends, and work that serves other people. Those are the happiness habits. That's your happiness 401k plan. And by faith, I don't mean my faith, I'm a Catholic. Highly recommend it, but I'm also a social <laughs> scientist. And I can tell you that what it comes from is a transcendental view of life. You need a bigger view of life. And maybe that comes from entirely secular understanding of reading the Stoic philosophers or studying the works of Johann Sebastian Bach or walking in nature or having a meditation practice or, or a traditional religion. But the bottom line is you got to zoom out because otherwise you're going to go crazy by focusing on you know, my lunch and my TV shows and my commute. And it's just horrible. And that's what you'll do because mother nature wants you to focus on you, 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 and you got to focus out, 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 out. And that's what that does. The second is family life and family life is really important. People have different members of their family and define it in different ways, but those are mystical relationships. That's mystical love that you didn't choose, which is Mm -hmm. why it's mystical. You got love. I mean, so how many, I can't remember how many children do you have? Three. And how old is your first? 11, nine and six. Okay. So you're 11 year old. Do you remember when she was, is that a boy or girl? All girls. Yeah. And your daughter, your 11-year-old daughter, when you first made eye contact with her after she was first born, it was like 4th of July inside your head. Yeah. That's, I mean, we understand neurophysiologically what's happening. There's an enormous release of oxytocin that's binding you to the baby. And social scientists will say that's so that Kathy doesn't leave her baby on the bus and blah, 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 blah. It's way more Mm -hmm. transcendental than that. Those are mystical relationships. That's number two. Number three is friendships. Those are the ones that you choose that are placed in your life. These are the people that you seek, and what the screw up that we always do. If you follow the bad for money, power, pleasure, fame, then all of your friends are deal friends. But if it's all about love, then they're real friends. Real is better than deal. And then the last but not least is your work. I mean, your daily bread. People's like, ah, drudgery. No, you exist to be. To, you're creative to serve other people to earn your success. This is how people are wired. And if you understand and have these goals in order, that's what puts you on the upper branch. Lower branch is just, you know, animal nature. Upper branch is divine nature.
0: Yeah, it's it's all so beautiful. And you just set it down so well. It makes it so accessible. And when I was in my 20s, I was studying world religion in college. And this sort of, I don't know, random thing came about, which was a trip to Israel. And I thought I was going to go for two weeks and I just kept extending my trip. So I stayed there for three years and I was learning, living in the old city of Jerusalem, learning from this very, very holy rabbi living with him and his wife and his seven children. And uh, it was like hitting control alt delete on the software program that I had been brought up with because he was saying things like you, he says, you know, when you think about me, me, me you become miserable. It's all All about me. Right. Mm -hmm. And It was then that I started to think that purpose was really so much more important than striving for a feeling of self-generated happiness. And I love the way that you put all of that together. And I'm so grateful that you have such a big audience that people are like consuming this because it's amazing to see how many people put their ladders on the wrong wall and they just keep achieving what they think they want. And it's just like this never ending insatiable quest because there's yeah. no, there there.
1: There's never, enough, never enough. enough for money, power, pleasure, fame. It's all. And the interesting thing is that people who really, really succeed, they're the most wretched of all because their heart's desire was attained. And it turns out they had the wrong heart's desire. And then you really are lost. If you, it's like, oh no, I met my goals and had the wrong goals. Because then there's only two possibilities. Either you're fundamentally mistaken in life, which people don't want to face, or it just means that you just need more of those goals so you finally get what you want. And so the second billion, right? More power, more heroin, more methamphetamine, more, I mean, more Instagram followers. And all you're doing is just like lighten up your brain with a dopamine that's turning into just a complete addict. And at the same time, you're never going to find what you want. On the contrary, you're going to get more and more and more and more and more miserable. That's the problem. That's your point about the ladder against the wrong wall. It's not just like a, a random wall, it's super dangerous, is the way that that turns out.
0: Oh my gosh, it's super dangerous. I love how you just kept talking about more, and then there's just more dopamine. And it's so, how do we begin, right? Because people, they like to do, right? Yeah. And not a lot of people have like this long history of a meditation practice where they know how to be. So they like to do. So if they want to take one step in this direction, I can see where it's daunting because people are very much believers that they really do need money and that that does still needs to be be like up there with goal number one or two, because they'll say to you, look at all the evidence that clearly I need my goals to be about making more money. How do we begin? What's a first step or a second step to have the experience of changing that program because words don't seem to teach. You know, it's experience that teaches. And so, what might be a step into this where they don't have to just listen to you and believe you, but they could feel, they could start to know that this is right?
1: Yeah. So, there's a lot of things that we can actually do, but there's a knowledge that's worth actually reviewing a little bit. To begin with, when I talk about this, when I teach this to my students, or when I'm talking about this in public, I always tie this to not just philosophy and theology and not just social science, but also to the neuroscience. Mm -hmm. And the neuroscience is really important to understand because we all have written and thought about what's called the mind-body problem. Where does my consciousness reside? Is there some external consciousness? These things are too abstract, you know, because when you want to feel better and you want your life to be in order, you need something that's a little bit more concrete than that. Right. So the first thing to keep in mind is that your brain, when you have these desires, when you're trying to figure out what your goals are, when you want to be successful, there are two parts of your brain that are working in concert with each other. There's the limbic system of the brain, which is a very, it's ancient compared to the newer part of your brain. People see a brain, it's like this wrinkly thing. What that is, that's the neocortex of the brain. And that's about, it's a sheet about the size of a meter square. And the reason it's wrinkly is because it's so big, it has to be bunched up inside your cranium. So yeah, underneath that, is the limbic system. And that's a more ancient part of your brain that was evolved over about a 40 million year period. Oh that's the part of your brain that takes the signals from your brainstem and your eyeballs and all that. And it turns it into emotions and desires and cravings. It turns it into signals to you that something's out there that you need to pay attention to. So if I, you, know, you hear a twig snap behind you, that immediately taps a part of the limbic system called the amygdala part of your brain. And that makes you feel fear immediate fear. Why? Because you're, you're evolved to run away before you know what's going on because you get that wrong and you're a tiger's lunch. That's the kind of thing. That <laughs> sends a signal. All of your desires and cravings and emotions, good and bad, are from your limbic system. They're sending them to the cortex of your brain, the modern part of your brain, the thinking part of your brain. The most important part is the bumper right behind your forehead called the prefrontal cortex. Here's the thing. Most people are managed by their limbic system. They're being managed by their impulses, which is a, not the most modern or human part of your brain. It's like you're being managed by a little kid all the time. It's like this weird thing. It's like, so you got like kids under 10 in the house. It's like, okay, from now on, you guys are in charge. I'm like awesome. <laughs> Chocolate milk every meal. You know, I think I'm going to have a bowl of candy corn for breakfast today. That's what your limbic system is doing. It's like, give me more sweets. You know, I feel angry. I'm going to scream. You know, I want to do something, I'm gonna do it. I feel unhappy, I'm gonna act on it immediately, right? That's the kids running the household. The most important thing to keep in mind is that when you have all these desires, that's just your limbic system. That doesn't mean you have to do anything. That's just a signal. So, this is the key thing is to realize that you can manage your limbic system. And that's what all religious and meditative traditions have in common. It's all neuroscience. What the Buddhists are doing is all neuroscience. They're basically saying, when you have an emotion, just observe it. Now, what are you doing? You're putting time so that your limbic system can't make you act yet. And then it gives a time for your conscious brain, for the grownups to catch up. You can't catch the little kids. They're very fast running around the house. But if you put time in there, the grownups can catch up and say, no, it's not the way we're going to do it. You have Power. You have power over your impulses. You just have to give yourself time and recognize that those feelings that you have don't dictate your reactions. You get to decide your reactions. That's the most important thing. And once people realize that's called metacognition, by the way, that's a technique called metacognition. And just knowing that is like having the most power you've had in the last 10 years of your life.
0: Oh my God. It's so good. I was laughing because I just told you I have a six, nine and 11 year old and yesterday, there were cornflakes all over the couch. And then I looked over and my cat was in a bonnet. They put a bonnet on the cat. And then my daughter is literally kicking my other daughter because she's wearing this hair scrunchie that she wants. And I'm laughing because I never heard it put that way, what you just said. And it's such a perfect way to put it. It's like, Why would you want that part, that nine year old running your brain? Like, you just don't want that. And I have sweet kids, but they react, they're reacting all the time. So, that was such a helpful way to say it. So, here's my question because (laughs) for a while now, I've had some level of this awareness. You know, I started out studying Buddhism and then went into my own faith, which was Judaism, but put them all together and then studied a lot of mindfulness and went on lots of retreats. And so, I know better. So, when I have days, where I, I'm having a kind of yucky feeling. I watch myself and I go, look at Kathy Heller, look at this avatar, look at her. She's just caught up and she's caught in it. And I think part of it is correct me if I'm wrong, but there's some level of like cortisol, there's some program, right. And on my brain is flooded and it's hard to get out of it, even when I know I'm in it. So for those of us who have a little awareness and are begging for some lever that we can pull to get us out of it. What do you do? What do you do then?
1: So that takes practice. Okay. You know, that takes discipline and that takes practice. And so, for a lot of the people who are, who are listening to us, for example, they do have a traditional religion and they do have a traditional religious practice that suggests prayer, but they don't understand how prayer works. Okay. People think about prayer as like, I'm going to talk to God now. Awesome. Hey, hello. Hello. How are you today? <laughs> you know, hey, how's it going? It's like, no, 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 understand. No, no, no. Prayer is truly deeply about understanding in most monotheistic traditions. It's understanding the creator in whose image I am made. Yeah. And so to pray is to understand yourself. To pray is a deep process of self-observation. When you're feeling flooded, then you need to pray. Okay, that's what we need to do to step back and to have a practice of that. Okay, now, not everybody wants to do that. So what else can we do? Another way to learn this and to practice this is every time you're feeling flooded, you go get your notebook and you write it down because that's the most metacognitive thing that you can do. People always talk about journaling, journaling. All journaling is doing is taking feeling from your limbic system and put installing them manually in your prefrontal cortex because you can't if you're writing it down, you're literally. You're experiencing it cortically as opposed to limbically. That's another way to do it. And so those are the two big ways. Pray and write it down. Pray and write it down. And so just get into the pattern of doing this every time you're feeling flooded. And some people are more reactive than others. But the biggest reason is because they haven't ever practiced these metacognitive techniques. Now, little kids have a really hard time doing it because their brains aren't fully wired. The connections between the limbic system and the the cortex of the brain are inadequate. The wiring is not there. And so, you know, your limbic system is fully formed, but your prefrontal cortex isn't. So they'll take risks. They'll do crazy things. They'll scream because something's wrong with the rice at dinner, or whatever. It's like there's a raisin in the rice and they freak out. It's like, but that's all of us inside ourselves. And the way that we discipline ourselves to do that is those are the two big techniques is actually, I'm going to pray about this. I'm going to think about this. I'm going to offer this up. I'm going to contemplate this. And then there's a couple of other just little things, just a couple of little, little tiny techniques in a pinch. These are the panic button. Okay. So Kathy, did you have a good relationship with your grandma? loved her yeah and is she still alive
0: no she passed like six years ago
1: okay and so she was a you know she was a good wise jewish grandma
0: yes very sweet like that yeah yeah
1: and if you say grandma when i'm really angry what should i do what would grandma have told you
0: well number one she was all about have compassion for the other person you never know what they're going through so don't be angry so
1: don't be so don't be angry is a hard thing to say right yeah like so what's the technique what would she tell you to do
0: well she used to say like you don't know what side of the bed they woke up on. She would say yeah. that in Yiddish, like give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is she used to dance. She was a great dancer and that's yeah. how she kind of survived a lot of really horrific things in her childhood. Yeah. So she used to say, don't take things so seriously, just dance.
1: Yeah. Okay. So there's a couple of things going on there. Number one is she's putting yourself in the place of the other. Imagine you're the other person. Yeah. That's a very good way for you not to flood for you to stop your flooding. The other thing that she's doing is she's actually looking for some sort of an opposite reaction. And this is this is called an opposite signal strategy. Now, when you're feeling sad, you're not going to be able to say, okay, just convince yourself you're happy. It's not going to work. Right. When you're feeling like sad, the way to do it is to go to the opposite and then go 30 degrees off. And so if you're sad, then think of something funny. Right, that's a good way to do it. You see what I'm saying here, but yeah. so just not quite opposite because your brain will believe that. Another thing that's really kind of a, an easy thing to do that people can remember is that you know my grandma used to say count to ten, count to ten because that's what that's doing is putting time between your limbic yeah. signal and your prefrontal cortex. That's not quite enough time. When you're angry, for example, that what's happening is it's called amygdala hijack. It's in the literature, it's what we call it. And it takes 20 minutes for that to calm down, but you can get control more or less. You can get the control back. You can get the hijackers out of your cockpit in about 30 seconds. So count to 30. And while you're counting to 30, imagine the repercussions of saying what you wanted to say, like I'm going to ruin the next 48 hours of my marriage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. And if you actually think you imagine yourself saying that thing while you're counting to 30, you're going to be saved you're going to be absolutely safe. So you won't do it. And then you can use these other techniques to actually feel a lot better and, and to grow from it. Now, the good thing is these bad feelings. And when you're becoming more metacognitive cognitive and better at self-management, these things, every time something bad happens, you get stronger and better, not weaker and worse. Right. That's the beauty of it because it's like lifting weights is what it comes. It's like putting yourself under voluntary stress as opposed to involuntary stress. Voluntary stress is super healthy for you. As a matter of fact, you need it or you, you know, you can't develop.
0: Wow. Those are really good things to think about. And that was really sweet that you asked me about my grandmother, because she's like one of my favorite characters in all of history. And that was really fun. One of the things that I've noticed is, you know, we have people on the show who've come here and talked about just how difficult it is for people to be in this receptive mode, to be Softening out of the fight or flight right which is right. what we're kind of talking about, and I've been kind of looking at this for a while and there's some there's some evidence that like joy actually feels pretty vulnerable, so we kind of go back to this familiar addiction this emotional addiction to stress right because it feels safer right and I had this experience last summer where we took the kids to South Carolina and we were at this beautiful hotel and we were out on a boat and it was just stunning water and dolphins. And I felt so happy that all of a sudden I felt nervous and my legs literally started to feel like anxious. Like I couldn't just, and so I was telling myself you're safe. You can go there. You can have this much joy and no, no one's going to drown right now. It's okay. Like we're fine. Like just enjoy it. And it was fascinating because it's just not a known experience to be that happy that so it's amazing how there's almost this like a sense of safety in being mm-hmm. a little bit miserable. It's almost like your brain goes, no, I defy you. Yeah. I'd rather have a bad 48 hours. I don't want to be that happy. That feels too vulnerable.
1: Yeah. Another thing that's actually related to this, and this is a very profound point that you're making is that what a lot of people will ask me is why... They can't get out of a bad cycle of conflict with the person that they love the sure. most in the world. You know, why do I have such a crummy marriage? Why is it that we can't stop fighting? And it's very much related often to what you're talking about. It has not that much to do with an, a fundamental incompatibility between the spouses. Right. For a lot of couples, that's the only time they're intimate is when they're fighting. Mm. The only time when they actually say what they think, they say what's written on their hearts, when they're really willing to open up and when somebody is actually opening up to them. It's when they're fighting. It's like there's no more intimacy. And when you think about it, when you're having like a big blowout argument with your husband, and then you're saying something that you've been thinking that you haven't said in three weeks or something, that's like super, that's like deep love communication is what you're doing. And that's why, by the way, sometimes after you have a big argument that's very intimate like that, you feel much closer to him. And so a a lot of people will find that, but they don't want to have the argument because that's damaging the relationship. And maybe you said some things and and said some things that went too far, and then there was too much limbic activity, et cetera, et cetera. So the key thing to keep in mind about that is how can you have that level of intimate communication without having the bitterness, without having the contempt, without having the insults? How can you say, I have five things I want to tell you? I got five things I want to tell you. And when you're not like in a hot hedonic state and it's like deep stuff about stuff, that's like really deep in your heart and having a time when you do that, then you can have all the intimacy of the fight, but without the bad 48 hours that follows. And the reason you weren't doing that before is because you're, you know, you're in a routine. The only time you talk to each other when you're not angry is about the kids and the commute and the dinner time and the the grocery shopping and, You never reserve time to fight. You do that because you're just pissed and that's not the way to do it.
0: I mean, I've never heard that before, but that makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. Like there's a level of intimacy in there that might feel like easier to reach for than another kind of intimacy. That makes so much sense. So with people wanting to live a happier life and wanting to take a step toward what you're saying, instead of like maybe biting off like happy life or happy second half of life so fast, what's a way to have happier moments every day? Like if we're going to finish listening to this episode and we want to have some happier moments tomorrow, what are a couple of things that we could reach for that might make our moment happier?
1: Yeah. That's what I write about the Atlantic every Thursday morning is like one area of that, you know, one little bite of one thing that we tend to to look at that we might not be. Now, the key thing is that a lot of things that we want to do are either too meta like, I want to be happy. <laughs> right, right. Or they're the kind of thing where they're wrong direction. Like self-care is generally speaking going in the wrong direction is the mm. way that that works. And the reason is just because other care is better than self-care for actually being a happier person.
0: That's it's- so fascinating. And I've never heard that. And I love that other care is probably going to get you there faster than self-care.
1: Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's the one thing wow. that I recommend that everybody do. If you want to feel better today, that's really counterintuitive. It's not trying to solve all the problems in the world and it's not going in exactly the wrong direction. It's actually figure out something to do. That's an, just a completely unprovoked kindness for somebody else. Like if you're like bumming at work, you feel like just a drone at work. Like I could just not do this and nobody would even notice. Get up go get a cup of coffee and bring it to the person in the next cubicle.
0: Oh my god, that is so good. That is like, so
1: And this is like your brain is going to work differently by the way. Your brain is going to work differently as a result of this, but it has cosmic significance to it because remember, I mean this is an ancient Hebrew saying that each person is the whole world. Yeah. Right? It's like we Christians, we just borrowed it from you guys, from you guys. We're right? all
0: family. It's I know one freaking I know. family. Yeah. You
1: know, you know what we say that we Christians, we say that we're a, a minor Nazarene sect of Judaism. So that. Of
0: course, of course
1: you are. Know, and that is remembering that the whole world is in each person and each, you know, eternity is encapsulated in each moment. And fold everything up into the moment of just unprovoked kindness and love for somebody in that particular moment for no particular reason. And that absurd little act suddenly can be a game changer. And everybody can actually do that. And they can do it in each day as, as, as you know, that's, by the way, the ultimate self-care. The ultimate self-care is not like dark chocolate and then a sauna or, you know, whatever. Yes. <laughs> it's a... <laughs> Lemons or or lavender scented candles. I don't know. I mean, it it was like all a a bubble bath. I don't know. It's that. I mean, this is the magic. That's so
0: incredible. I love it so much. I I just wanna do that. I just wanna like make my whole podcast about one random kind thing you can do. And I know that um I'm gonna butcher this, so I'm hoping that you'll set me on the right path. But I know there was a study at Harvard. Maybe you even conducted it, but maybe it was like way before your time. But I think there was this study of like, how can I be happier? Yeah. And then they did a week of like, what do you think would make you happy? And they spent money on themselves and whatever. And the second week they came back and did for other people. And I guess the results were that they were so much happier, right? Can you tell me anything about that study? Do you do you know what I'm talking yeah. about?
1: Yeah, yeah. That's a, There's a whole bunch of studies that are kind of like that. And that was the self-care, other care. That was the altruism study versus the self-care study. And what they found was that when they would, this were undergraduate students. So it's not exactly the random slice across the population. You got a lot of people who are in very weird circumstances, but that's what you always do is because there's a captured population who will do anything for 20 bucks. <laughs> and you, know, you experiment on, on students. And I wasn't involved in this study. But I was, the study's actually been had taken place in a whole bunch of different universities. And half the students are instructed to do, you know, figure out something that they always like to do. Right. Right. And then every time they're feeling bummed out or once a day or whatever, they'll do that thing. And the others are assigned to do something they wouldn't naturally do, which is an act of kindness for other people and to do that. And the people who engage in the act of kindness, which is unnatural, are twice as happy. I mean, it feels good to do the things that you like. I mean, having the chocolate or taking the sauna or what happens to be. But when you do that thing for the other people, it's just like magic. You're going against your nature. Once again, it's animal nature versus divine nature. If you follow the animal nature a little bit, it feels good. If you follow it a lot, it feels bad. If you follow your divine nature a little, it feels really good. And if you feel it a lot, if you do it a lot, it's a game changer. It'll change your life.
0: It's amazing. I'll never forget this. I was, um, I was walking to my doctor's office and there was a period of time where I was going to the same doctor quite often because I was going to fertility treatment. And so I was just, parking in the same lot, walking down the same block. And so there was a homeless guy who was always there in front of this one place where I would always in this parking structure. And I would remember that. And he had this really beautiful energy. And so I really liked giving him money. It was just a really fun thing to engage with this guy. And so one day he wasn't there when I was on my way to the doctor, but when I was on my way back, it started to rain and he was there And he was outside and I was like looking to scoot in so quickly to the door so I could run up the stairs and get to my car because it was raining up, but I saw him. And so I look in my bag and all I have is like a $10 bill. So I thought for, I'm going to be honest. I thought for a second, like, do I give him a $10 bill? I usually give him like a buck. And I was like, I'll give it to him. I'll give it to him. So I walk over and I hand it to him and he says, thank you. He goes, you are a miracle. He would tell everybody they were a miracle. Is this a sweet guy? So I go inside real fast and I'm walking up the steps and there's a glass the whole way up the stairs. It's glass. You can see out to the street. And I no joke, I must be in the staircase for 11 seconds. And I look out the window and I can see this guy out the window and he's shouting to everybody. You're a miracle. You're a miracle. And another man who looked as though he was also homeless, who was walking on crutches. He walks by this man and this man hands him the $10 bill I just gave him. And he goes, brother, you're a miracle. God bless you. And I broke into tears and I'll never forget it. And I thought, oh my gosh, to me, that $10 was like not really a thing to him. That $10 looks like it was kind of a thing. And he gave it away. And I was like, oh, who's richer, me or him?
1: Yeah. No, the gift is in the giving. It's incredible. There's one way, by the way, because you know a lot of people are listening to us. They see a lot of people who are homeless and they feel kind of helpless about that. And, and there's one thing that you can do that can take it actually into the stratosphere. There's one more thing that you can actually do. And the one thing that's a true gift to everybody, everybody is to be needed. That's what everybody needs. And we have a whole class of the population, you know, poor people, people at the margins of society. And the, the horrible thing is that their are liabilities to manage and the human dignity that that actually sacrifices. So one thing that we can do, you know, so you see the homeless guy in the street and what do you need from him? And I think I know, I think you need his prayers because God hears the prayers of the poor, right? You need him to pray for you and your family. You need him to pray for your daughters. He needs a little money. You need his prayers. And then we're cosmically in union. Then we're truly one.
0: Yeah, it's unbelievably beautiful. And you can feel, I think that whenever tears come, it's, it's recognizing the truth is what's happening. Yeah. And that's, I think, why we cry, because something inside of us goes, that, that's the truth. And when you just said I got chills as you were beginning to share this piece. And you said, people need to be needed. And I got chilled because that's it, right? And it's, yeah. there's such a loss of dignity when you think of this person of like, okay, what can I give to them? What can I give to them? And you forget that they have so much to give to you. Yeah. And it's astonishing. I mean, it's just what you just said is so, so how could we actually implement that into our life. I mean, one thing is I guess if you see somebody, you could ask them, you know, mm-hmm. you could say uh I'd love a blessing from you or I'd love you to pray for my my well-being and they might they might be sort of taken aback because they might not hear that every day. Yeah. But uh maybe part of it would sink in. You know, maybe just for a second they would even consider the fact that you thought there was something they could do for you. How giant is that? How
1: beautiful is that? And your kids, you know, I mean, the poorest people that are near us every day are our children. Oh, it's we don't. That's so we, sweet,
0: sweet. Yeah. I never would think of that. You're right. Yeah. Though.
1: I mean, we, it's like we think of poor people as people who are, you know, unhoused or living in poverty. And, and there's plenty of that. And there's so much that we can do. But our kids are the poor and blessed are the poor. And how do we bless the poor by empowering them to bless us? And, you know, we unload the dishwasher. Okay. There's more to that it's like to say to your kids, I need your love. I need your love (laughs) because we do. That's all we want. It's all we want. My kids too. I mean, I'm going to be a grandfather next month. And uh, what do I want? I want their love. I want their blessings.
0: It's amazing. They're so lucky to have you at Harvard. They're so lucky. I feel like you're so refreshing in the sense that You know, Martha Beck tells me, she's like, I had to leave Harvard so I could talk about the things I really want to talk about. And sometimes you go into institutions and this stuff is too touchy-feely for them, or it's too, uh, you know, it's not backed in enough science. And the science you speak of is so compelling, it's hard to unsee what you're saying. And you can feel it, right? Um, But I'm really impressed That, first of all, I know how much positive psychology is going on at Harvard, and it's been trailblazing that path for such a long time. But the fact that they have someone like you, who so overtly talks about meaning and purpose and God and faith, it's like, God is, that is pretty progressive these days. That's pretty amazing.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. And, you know, the, the truth is that we all can do this. We all can bring what we have and bring our whole selves to it. We hold back a lot more than we need to. And it's not a service to ourselves, and it's really not a service to other people as well. And It's also really helpful. I'm 58, and I'm not 38. You know, at 58, it's like, nothing matters except this. Nothing matters except the truth all the time. And I'm very lucky that they reward me for it at, you know, the Atlantic and Harvard, these exalted platforms for yeah, sure. They but are. You know, they I are. Am. I'm just not going to talk about things, dumb stuff that doesn't matter anymore. And again, this is just my view of what's dumb stuff and what doesn't matter. I mean, some people are like, (laughs) the weather and the box scores and all that. But for me, it's like, time is short. (laughs) In my family, we die young. So I'm not screwing around here. We have to lift each other up as much as we possibly can with whatever time that we have. And by the way, that's the secret. The most amazing thing is that, you know, it's like I teach my students. My class in science of happiness is to make them into happiness professors. Mm -hmm. not to teach them the secrets of happiness, but so that they can teach the secrets of happiness, because that's the ultimate secret to getting happier is sharing the secrets to happiness with other people so they can understand what the science is saying, but how they can express it. Other people, how they can share it with other people. And that's really where, that's where the magic happens is where we pass it on, which, and you're a happiness teacher. I mean, look at your show. (laughs) You're a happiness teacher. That's so
0: sweet. (laughs) And one of the things I'm trying to teach, is that the people who are listening are needed because so often this feeling of being a fraud or an imposter or, or not being enough is so prevalent that there's so much low hanging fruit that we could tap into. But it's this feeling of like, well, why would this person even need me? You know, why would I even knock on my neighbor's door? I'm not that interesting or I won't know what to say. Or I mean, this constant self doubt. You know, you don't even have to necessarily look for someone else who needs to be needed. I think so many people I speak to don't know that they're needed. And and often I say, you know, for my own sense of faith, I say, if you're here, you're assigned. God doesn't make extras. We need you. You're needed. And people will literally argue with me and say, you are wrong about me. I am not needed. There's nothing about me that's special or extraordinary. And I say, oh, my gosh, look again. So how do you help people to really embody that they're needed because I do see that probably more than anything.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's sort of two classes of people that we create created in our society and we create for ourselves. There's the assets and the liabilities. And the assets are people that are developed and they might be very expensive to develop people, but like our own children, we consider them assets to develop and not liabilities to manage. And then there's a whole outcast group of people that consider themselves and we consider to be liabilities to manage. And, you know, the welfare system does this and, you know, it's like, we don't need you. These are completely extraneous. And we manage them as liabilities so we can get them off the books as it were, you know? And so number one, that's an inhuman way for us to treat our sisters and brothers. I mean, in public policy and in private life and everything else, we should never treat anybody like a liability. That's what we're talking about before. But how do people do that who feel themselves to be liabilities, which is a really interesting thing to do? The answer is you turn the tables if you feel like a liability who's being managed, then overtly go out and solve somebody else's problem. This is the key. And everybody can help somebody. I mean, everybody yes. can, can serve. And, and maybe it is a prayer. Maybe it is an act of love. Maybe it is an act of unprovoked kindness. And, and all of us feel like liability sometimes, by the way. I mean, we have that tendency to feel that way. Some of us are very lucky to, to be empowered. So I don't feel that way very often but no matter what, everybody can take their power back by serving others. Serve others and you have power. You have become an asset. You've redefined yourself as an asset. And the more that you do that, the better off you're going to be.
0: I think one thing that you said a few times, which is such a beautiful, consistent theme with you, is that you can serve through love. See, I think what people are wired into thinking is that I'm needed if I'm spectacular at something. I'm needed if I'm an achiever. I'm needed if I get A's in mathematics or if I'm the skinniest girl or whatever it is. I have to achieve something to be qualified. I have to be qualified to be needed. And what you keep saying is, love, prayers, right? Like blessing someone else, being kind to someone else. And I think, I'm wondering if you could speak to, as we're sort of wrapping up, like what compelling data do you have or science do you have that shows that love is the most impressive gift or that just being present is actually what people need more than your fancy resume?
1: Yeah. There's a lot of evidence on this. And i give you a couple of pieces of sort of common sense evidence that have studies, but don't require studies. So if you think about it, Kathy, if I were to interview your daughters and I would say, what do you need most from your mom? They would not say a fabulously popular podcast. (laughs) That's true. They wouldn't say that. They wouldn't say excellent cooking. They wouldn't say anything that requires lots of human skill and that other people admire they would say the most ordinary things. They would talk about the fact that you're the only person who can be their mom. You're the only person in the whole world that can be those little girl's mom. And that's what they need. And that's, that's love, not worldly adulation. Mm-hmm. Remember, the big four, faith, which is love of the divine, family, which is love of the mystical people with whom God placed in your path, friendship, the real friends who are completing you, and, and work that serves others, which is earning your daily bread where you love the whole world. Love, 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 and more love is what it comes down to. And there's lots of studies behind that, but we all recognize that. Here's a second way to think about it. You know, I see these studies that are really interesting. And one of the things that always impresses me is why do some people grow up and pursue their faith and other people don't? It's a kind of an interesting social science question. And it turns out the number one predictor of your children growing up and practicing their faith is seeing their father practicing the faith. I'm like, huh, how come? And the answer is very simple, it turns out. You know, there's nothing sexist about it at all. He is generally the single most powerful person that little kids see. I mean, when I was a kid, I wondered if my dad could lift the house, (laughs) right? And my dad bowed the knee to no man, but he was on his knees on Sunday morning. And that had a huge impact on me. So witnessing his love and obedience to the divine made me the man that I am today. That's really what it comes down to. Do you really want to bring the very best? It's completely ordinary, but it's supernatural because it's love. And so paying attention to your followers and to your money and to the people who report to you and, and your kids don't care (laughs) and God doesn't care. And your real friends don't care. The only people who care, the people who don't love you is what it comes down to. And that's the reason that that's how we create the greatest value is with the most ordinary and yet the most supernatural thing that we're endowed with.
0: It's so beautiful. Wow. The Talmud says that too, that if you want your kids to grow up and to have a connection to see their father praying, it says that. Even though Judaism is actually matrilineal, it goes through the mom, but but still it says that, that that's in there for thousands of years. Okay, my last question to you, because I I know that some people listen to this and they have a hard time. It took me like a year and a half to t- start talking very openly about God on the show because people, it's kind of like in Alaska, there's probably like 70 words for snow, right? It's like, That's you awesome. don't just say snow, you say like sleep or, you know, there's right. whatever. So I think that people have so many different adjectives and experiences around that word that it's hard for them to find their connection to the divine, Right. right. And so what might be something you could say, since I'm sure you've had this thought and this conversation many times, like for anyone who wants to plug in to that, which is the source of all of us, which we're all unified by, right? Mm -hmm. What's a way for people that do you think that they could um, find that? Even if their childhood experience with that word is actually difficult, you know, like I I don't want it to preclude people from being a part of the conversation, because I think that there's a way in which we are all connected in this one creator. How do you often approach that so that people can actually be a part of that?
1: People have a hunger for this. They have a deep hunger for it, but they don't know where to start. And they're kind of committed to not doing that. I mean, yeah. I always said it was stupid. And so your pride will keep you from, from, you know, going in a particular direction. And and they just don't know, particularly if they come from no tradition at all, they don't have any background in it. Not to mention the fact that with people that you love, it's extremely embarrassing. For example, <laughs> there, there'll be married couples who they weirdly, even if they are religious, they won't pray together. I mean, prayer is more intimate than sex. And so praying together is like the most intimate thing you can possibly do. And there are married couples for 40 years who are embarrassed to see each other praying. And so no joke, there's power here that we're talking about. So what I recommend to people who are kind of, am I on a path? What am I seeking? I don't understand. Is to start really, really humbly. And that means basically doing the work by saying, I'm gonna set aside 10 minutes a day. And the 10 minutes a day, I'm gonna spend half of it reading, and half of it just sitting, no devices. That's a process called discernment. And in every religious tradition, which really in my tradition starts with Judaism, with Rabbi Hillel, the elder, who asked about, you know, is interrogating yourself for five minutes a day, just five minutes, you know, maybe you're reading the Stoics, maybe you're reading a book of prayer, maybe you're reading the Dalai Lama, read something that's the wisdom literature, and then five minutes contemplating that. Sitting in contemplation of that, uh-huh. this just opens your heart. It opens you up to greater stimulus. And so what's going to happen is, if you do this seriously and do it some days a week, it's better than the gym. It's going to make you want more. It's going to go to fifteen. You're going to find that pretty soon it's thirty because you don't have enough time in ten. You just don't have enough time in ten, right, to actually do this. And then you're going to find that once the door is cracked, that somebody's going to open it up and come through. And if you've got the courage to let that door open. Do you have the courage? It's going to change you.
0: I mean, you're so lovable. Everything you say is love. I'm so grateful that you came on the show. Thank you so much. Arthur Brooks, he is amazing. You guys were listening. You were part of it. Tell everybody where they can get your most latest book and where they can follow along with you.
1: I have all the stuff that just like everybody else, I get a website, Arthur Brooks, <laughs> as it sounds, com. And, you know, the column of the Atlantic comes out every Thursday morning and there's books sometimes and podcasts and videos. And I like to share these ideas and I'm really grateful to be with you because you're bringing love to the world and it's wonderful to be part of it.
0: You're the sweetest. God bless you. May you go from strength to strength and just continue to have all the best opportunities to just share your light. It's so pure. It's so good. I'm so blessed to have been with you. you. Thank you so much.
1: And uh, (laughs) may you go from strength to strength as well.
0: Thank you. What a fascinating conversation. Arthur is such an encyclopedia of knowledge. All right, here are the takeaways. Number one, Mother Nature doesn't care if you're happy. That means we are responsible for our own happiness. Mother Nature wants you to focus on you, 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 and you got to focus out, out, out. Number two, you have power over your impulses. You just have to give yourself time and recognize that those feelings that you have don't dictate your reactions. You get to decide your reactions. Number three, other care will make you happier than self-care. If you want to feel better, it's about figuring out something something to do that's a completely unprovoked kindness for somebody else. When you do that thing for other people, it's just like magic. Number four, the gift is in the giving. And the one thing that's a true gift to everybody is to be needed. We bless the poor by empowering them to bless us. Number five, we have to lift each other up as much as possible with whatever time we have. The ultimate secret to getting happier is sharing the secrets to happiness with other people. Number six, everybody can take their power back by serving others. Serve others and you have power. You have redefined yourself as an asset instead of a liability. The more that you do that, the better off you'll be. Number seven, set aside 10 minutes a day. Spend half of that time reading and half of that time just sitting down without a device, without a phone. Once the door is cracked, that higher power is just going to open it up and come through. And if you've got the courage to let that door open, it's going to change you. Thank you so much for listening to this show. I know that you have a zillion things to do and it means so much that you're here. We have so many good episodes that are coming up truly. So please subscribe and follow along on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening. And if you feel like being generous and taking two minutes to leave us a review, it always helps so much more than you would possibly know. If you can think of someone who would enjoy this episode, please text them the link or email them the link or maybe post about it on your Instagram. And before we go, I just want to remind you that I am offering some bonuses. If you sign up for my retreat before for April 1st, you can go to kathyheller.com slash retreat to grab that spot to find out more information. Here's a song of mine. I love you so much. I'll talk to you soon.
2: We should get away, make today a holiday, steal a little time, stay and better go outside. come, share some secrets oh. no one knows.